The gospel reading this morning is from Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, practice that one too, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matham, Matham, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wasn't just mad at Twyla this week. Uh, I was kind enough to not have her read it in the King James Version with the begats and the forsooths and all of that. But when I uh, told Matt what, we were, what the reading was, he just responded, uh, are you serious? <laughs> Over text. And I was. Um, so that really just happened. Now, why would we read that? Uh, you may still be answer, asking that question after the sermon, but this is one of those parts of the Bible that seems to be the least vital. It's just historical record. It's just so that people know whose mother was whom and so forth. It seems like one of the least obvious places in the entire Bible to look for God and to find grace. And if you were to sit down and read the New Testament. Your goal this year is maybe to read through the whole New Testament. This would be the first part that you would encounter and probably the first part that you would skip. All of a sudden, you've got a head start. Look at that, how fast I'm reading this. But this morning, we're going to do a little bit more than just read it. Thank you for being a good sport, Twyla. We're going to talk about it in depth uh, because it's actually very important. There's a reason that this is here, not just for historical record, but for our spiritual benefit. And I think you'll find that it's actually surprisingly 
interesting. And we're going to um, basically kind of have a short series with bookends. This is chapter 1, and next week is chapter 28 that will kind of help us uh, think about what's going on with ordination, what's going on with being called to ministry in general. And so we're kind of setting this up uh, this way by reading that very difficult passage. Now, if you were to open the Bible uh, and it was a Greek Bible, the first two words of this would be biblios genesios. Now, it doesn't take going to seminary to figure out what genesios is referring to. It's genesis, or as we would say, genesis. Biblios genesis. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis is not only the beginning of the story of Israel, but it's the beginning of all things. It's the beginning of the story of the entire world. Why is there something rather than nothing? And where is this something going? And Matthew, from the very beginning, in two words, he's implying that the story of Jesus is a new Genesis. It's a story of a new creation. And that is enough for a few sermons right there, just two words. But it's not just this one illusion that Matthew gives us to Genesis or to the story of the Old Testament. He gives us these long, very stylized genealogies, or he gives one, which is a callback to these numerous genealogies in Genesis. He also gives us five discourses or five sermons of Jesus that make the Jewish reader, and hopefully us, remember what? The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. We have the Sermon on the Mount, this new law that's coming from the mountain that is recalling this law given from the mountain of Sinai. Jesus' birth is miraculous, just like the miraculous births of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And as we looked a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jesus being driven into the desert and tempted for 40 days, paralleling and calling back to the 40 days of, 40 years of wilderness wandering and temptation for the nation of Israel. And we saw his sojourn into Egypt as a reference to Israel's exile into Egypt. This is all highly intentional, it's highly stylized, not just a historical record, but Jesus' story, according to Matthew, is a retelling of the whole story of Israel, and inhabiting that story, it's the story of the whole world. Why is there something rather than nothing? Where is creation going? Matthew hangs that on the shoulders of Jesus. Well, that's interesting, and that helps us see what Matthew is up to here, but notice who's present in these genealogies. First of all, we see Abraham, we see Isaac, we see Jacob, David, Solomon. The usual suspects, right? These are the, the kings of Israel. These are the great patriarchs. They're the main characters that any story in the ancient world would tell. Tell us about the kings of your nation. Tell us about the patriarchs. Tell us about the main male characters. But there are some names that make you scratch your head. Why, Matthew, would you include these that really in an ancient king list have no business being present at all? There's Ruth, there's Tamar, 
there's Rahab, and then there's Uriah's wife. Now, it may not seem strange to have Ruth there. Ruth has an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to her. Why is it strange that she's here? Well, as I said a moment ago, A, she's a woman. She's female. But two, she is someone who is an assertive female. She's not immoral in the same way that two of these characters are, but she is a very different kind of female than would have been expected or would have been tolerated in an ancient patriarchal society. In the kingly genealogies, if you look through the numerous ones in the Old Testament, you look through all of them in the ancient Near East, this is what Matthew is writing, and none of them included women. They were all about the male kings. These are national versions of my dad can beat up your dad. Look at our great heritage. Look at all these powerful, mighty kings. They're, they're boasts, right? They're, they're boasts of how great and strong and virile our kings are. Women in the ancient world were seen as weak. They were seen as accessories. They need to be protected. They care for the children while the men go off to war. And so just having one in here is very remarkable and very unusual. But if he was going to choose women, he does choose Mary, that seems logical, but why not choose Sarah? Why not choose Rebecca? Why not choose Rachel? Not only are these four that I mentioned women, but they're also non-Israelites. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. The Canaanites are the historical enemies of Israel. They're in this list of Jesus' family. Ruth is a Moabite, and Uriah's wife is a Hittite. This is like telling our national history and including Sally Hemings in a very prominent role in the telling of our founding father's story. That is the slave that Thomas Jefferson kept, owned, and slept with for 40 years. But there's more. Because not only are these four people women, as I said, Ruth doesn't just submit to her fate submit her fate to the whims of this male determination, but she's brash, she's assertive. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute in order to get pregnant by Judah. Rahab is a prostitute and probably runs a brothel. Uriah's wife is who? Does anyone know? Bathsheba, Bible trivia, ding, 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 way to go. Uriah's wife, we'll talk about why does he not just say Bathsheba in a minute, but it's interesting that she's here in Jesus' family tree in a very prominent way. In 2018, a new exhibit was opened at Monticello, the historic estate of Thomas Jefferson, and it was devoted to the memory and the legacy of Sally Hemings, the slave that our third president, had a 40-year sexual relationship with and fathered many children with. And after two centuries of actively ignoring this open secret, one of our nation's most important 
historical sites was finally grappling in the open with this reality of slavery in the home of one of liberty's most prominent champions, the hypocrisy that inhabited this very important house. And Sally Hemings' mixed-race descendants were finally being brought in to participate in the family meetings alongside Jefferson's Caucasian heirs. Now Bathsheba, like Sally Hemings, was a victim. What happened with her and King David, likely not consensual, would have probably been considered at least sexual assault today, if not rape, and it brought absolute chaos into the royal family. Now, even today in our Me Too society, some of Jefferson's descendants want to deny that Hemings' family are descendants of Thomas Jefferson, that they don't and should not get to participate in the Jeffersonian legacy and name and prestige. Why? Because they were born to an African-American slave. But somehow, almost 2,000 years ago, Matthew doesn't whitewash Jesus' heritage, but he includes one of Israel's most infamous and sordid events, as if to say what? As if to say that these are the kind of people that Jesus' story is written for. These are the people that were included in the story on purpose, that didn't get the recognition, that actually were othered. They were outsiders that were brought in. Now, why does this matter to us? Well, most of us here this morning in this room live lives that would have been the envy of even the wealthiest in history. We regular people live lives that kings and emperors would have envied 100, 200, 300 years ago. And even by the standards of the modern world, we in the West are magnificently privileged. And yet, yet we are some of the most unhappy people on the planet. We're overworked, we're sleep-deprived, we're medicated, we're addicted, we're hyper-distracted constantly. Many of us are unsure of our purpose and why we get up to do what we do, why we hurry around from event to event. There's no real overarching teleology to why we do these things and why we keep doing them, why these events matter, and if they do. And unlike our ancestors who have lived for millennia in very close contact with multi-generations in their family, we live generally remote and detached from our family tree, particularly in large urban environments. And even the most successful among us, perhaps the successful most prominently, are haunted by that voice of the inner critic and the meritocratic society that we live in saying, are you really doing enough? Are you really making it? Get it together. The world is leaving you behind. Your company's leaving you behind. Don't blow this meeting. This world that you've made, this 
life that you've made for yourselves, it could all come crushing down tomorrow. So be careful. Careful. Be on alert. Don't blow it. You take your allotted vacations, you take your downtime, you have hobbies, you have creative endeavors, and you still are depleted and exhausted. We try to keep it together in public, we try to keep it together on social media, and we do a pretty good job. But behind the scenes, we worry. Are we doing enough? Are we impressing the right people? Do I really have what it takes to show up tomorrow. And Christianity, for most of us, isn't helping. (laughs) It's just another chore list, another set of metrics that we worry about failing. Henry David Thoreau says this, the mass of humanity lead lives of quiet desperation. The mass of humanity lead lives of quiet desperation. Maybe this very strange and foreign-sounding section of Matthew that most of us would skip is exactly what we need to hear. Maybe it's going to the places in the Bible that we least expect to find God and finding Him present there and present with grace is what we need. Maybe we need to be reminded that Jesus' story isn't made up of the winners and the doers, and the morally outstanding, but instead it's narrated full of Tamars and Rahabs and Ruths and Bathshebas. And that should be comforting, but in our achievement-driven society and in our egos, you see, we want to be included not because we're Tamar, not because we're Ruth and Bathsheba, we want to be included because we're We're in. We're us. We've achieved. We've arrived. We've done our duty. We don't want to be the even they can get in kind of people. Grace is a beautiful thing for others. But see, what Matthew tells us is that though Jesus came to bring all people to God, His story is primarily told through encounters with people on the margins, with the uninvited, with the others, with those who are at the wrong end of the score, people at the bottom end of the bell curve. Matthew is told, and the Bible tells a story, that grace, like water, it always pools in the lowest places. Now, Matthew could have written a standard history, how Jesus' ancestors were the prominent patriarchs. Look at his great lineage. Look at how prominent his family tree is. But if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture that God himself in some way is telling us something in the gospel accounts, then we see that God is likely telling the story different than Matthew probably would think to tell it, probably than he would have wanted to tell it. He names these three people, Ruth, Tamar, and the other one, (laughs) Rahab. 
Ruth, Tamar, Rahab. He names them, gives them their proper names. But then he says, the wife of Uriah. Isn't that interesting? Everyone else is listed. Why wife of Uriah? Well, we can't say for certain, but sometimes the most beautiful parts of the Bible are hidden in plain sight in little details like this that take some time to kind of dig out. Maybe this is just a literary mnemonic device. He's writing to Jewish people. They would probably just read these names and skip over it, and so he wants them to think. Remember, it's Bathsheba, and so he writes it, the wife of Uriah, so they perk up and listen. But I can also imagine Matthew sitting with his quill pen or whatever he used to write and chafing at this inspiration that he's receiving from God and saying, God, really? Really? Tamar? Ruth? Rahab? Bathsheba? This is the story that you want us to tell, that you want people to remember for all time? I can just imagine him writing these down and getting more and more uncomfortable and just kind of leaving it with the wife of Bathsheba. He doesn't even want to name her. And God is saying, yes, her. Yes, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab. Because if she is not invited, if she is not included, then how can any of us be? When we struggle to imagine anyone outside of ourselves or any group being included, we cut off our own pathway to grace. When we imagine it's the other people who really need grace, and I got in with this amount, but oh, they really need grace. We are cutting off the very pathway that we walk to God on. And you see what was designed for Israel, for the family of God, but never fully realized, is that it would include members of all tribes and all nations and all people groups, and it would include the morally unqualified. It would include the religious, ethnically, sexually disqualified and disinvited. And throughout the Bible, we see these little anecdotes, we see these little anomalies, these stories where God is saying, yes, her, yes, him, yes, them. They are invited to the table. And over and over, Israel doesn't get it. Over and over, the church still doesn't get it. Throughout this history, both of the Hebrew Bible and of our Christian history, our ancestors have mostly said, like maybe what Matthew is thinking, no, not her, not him, not them. You can't build a normative theology based on these little anomalies of God letting in unusual people. We have to tell the central story. And it's a story of strength. It's a story of males. It's a story of the invited people. It's a story of those that belong, not the exceptional cases. But what happens when Jesus comes as this new creation story, this new creation character, comes as this Redeemer King who stands in the lineage of this Messiah that Israel has been waiting on? When He comes to recapitulate the story, He comes bringing a sordid history 
He comes with a genealogy of misfits. He comes with a family tree full of the disqualified, which is saying not just of them, but of you and of me. Yes, her. Yes, him. Yes, them. I invite, I include all of them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would extend grace to others, to the other, whoever that person might be in our mind, because we believe that you have extended grace to us. And as we come to this table, I pray that that would be not only depicted to us, memorialized once again, but that you would infuse us with grace, that you would feed us with grace as we feed upon these elements. And may their meager size, meager scope, meager appearance, let that be transcended by powerful, everlasting grace in all of our lives. And I pray that as we come to the table that we would see the other in the person that is receiving these elements before us and after us and next to us, and that we would see that in so many people's accounts that we are the other. And I pray then that we would extend grace even to ourselves and remember that you say, yes, him, yes, her, yes, them. Lord, we pray this in your son Jesus' name, the author of grace. Amen.